then some Jewish leaders came, right, who also believed in Jesus, and they said, no, to become a follower of Jesus, you have to become a Jew. You need to get circumcised, and you need to follow the law of Moses, the dietary regulations, Sabbath-keeping, all of this. This is what the people of God have been doing for hundreds and hundreds of years, and you have to do it too. This was the first great controversy in the church. And so they start teaching that, and these believers in Galatia start to believe them. Okay? And some of them start to get circumcised, but it creates a major controversy. And Paul gets in a fight with them. You can read about this in Acts chapter 13 through 15. Okay? Acts chapter 13 through 15 is the history of all that happens here with this. Paul gets in a fight with them. He's getting upset. He goes to Jerusalem to verify, okay, this is what I've been teaching amongst the Gentile converts. What do you say, apostles in Jerusalem? And they convene, and they have a, a, a meeting amongst the elders, and they side with Paul. They say Paul is correct. They, they rule that this circumcision teaching is not in accordance with the word of God. It becomes heretical, okay? But in this time, it's very controversial, okay? Eventually, Paul's position is going to win out. But at this time, it's very controversial in the church, Okay? So that's why we need to understand the context in which Paul is speaking because a lot of times people are misunderstanding these verses because they don't understand the first century context. Make sense? Amen. All right, have you opened to Galatians chapter 2? We're in verse 11 here, and it says this. When Cephas came to Antioch, pause, time out. Okay, we pronounce it Cephas. It's actually, if you want to be, you know, correct, it's actually Kepha. Okay, that's how you pronounce it in ancient Greek, okay? It's Kepha, all right? But, you know, we bastardize every name, all right? Every biblical name, all right? We, we, they're translated to Greek, and then to Latin, and then to English. And that's why you get all the J's, right? James. There's no James, okay? Like, it's, you know, oh, now I'm, now I'm forgetting. It's, 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 it's with the Y, right? It's Jesus. There's no Jesus, right? It's Yeshua, okay? That's his actual name. Right, but when you translate it from Greek to Latin to English, and it, it goes through this little germ, turns it J's, right. So there's all these J's. The J, the J's really should be Y's, but whatever. Okay, we just call him Cephas. All right. When Cephas came to Antioch, <laughs> let's pause again. Antioch is a modern-day Turkey, okay? Antioch is going to be the church that becomes the mission-sending place. Paul and Barnabas are going to go out from Antioch. Now, to understand all this drama, you need to understand first-century Hellenization. Everybody say Hellenization. Okay, how many of you have studied Hellenization in your history classes? All right, I took my wife through all this mini history lesson this past week. You guys ready for a little mini history lesson? Amen. Okay. All right, before Galatians, we did a study in the book of Daniel. You guys remember Daniel? Daniel prophesied twice about the nations that would be coming to power. He saw a vision of a statue, and the statue's head was gold, and its shoulders were silver, and its midsection was bronze, et cetera, et cetera. And he, and the the interpretation that was given is that the nation that was ruling the world at that time was Babylon. That's the Neo-Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar. And after Nebuchadnezzar would come the Persians. They represented the silver. And that's Darius, right, and Cyrus. And then after the Persians come the... 
Yes, kind of, in the Greeks, okay, but it's only a kind of because it's not really Sparta, okay, Sparta versus Athens, that's before, all right, Peloponnesian War and all that, but in these times, it's a guy named Alexander, okay, Alexander the Great comes out of Macedonia and northern Greece, conquers the Greek peninsula, and then they go on and they take out Persians. Now, the reason why this is relevant and important is because Alexander had an agenda. Alexander was a, he was, he believed Greek culture was greater than every other culture. So what he decided was that he was going to make everyone Greek, okay? Everyone throughout his empire was going to learn to write in Greek. Everyone was going to learn Socrates and Aristotle and Plato and all the Greek philosophers, and everyone would worship Greek gods, okay? All the Greek gods like Zeus and Athena and all these people, they were going to worship. And so what happens is they start to push all of this Greek cultural influence on the entire empire of, that the Greeks controlled. Now, who got really pissed off about this? Israel. Okay, the Jews got really upset about this. Why? Because God had just sent them into exile. Why? Because they worshipped other gods, right? And so when they come back into the land, and now the Greeks are ruling them, and they're saying, you need to worship all these other gods, what happens? The Jews get really, really upset. And they launch a revolt. At Christmas time, guess what? Jews don't celebrate Christmas. They celebrate Hanukkah. Right? Hanukkah commemorates the time in which the Jews revolted against the Greeks and won their independence for a short period of time until the Romans came in. All right, you, get, you, you got the history? Amen? Praise Jesus. Okay? Why is any of this relevant, Pastor Dennis? <sighs> because you need to understand this. Greek culture was a thing. Okay? Greek culture was a thing. And you have to understand the internal politics of Israel. Within Israel, there was the sense of we are Jewish. We worship one God. We are the people of God. We follow his ways. And we resist Greek culture. We resist Hellenization. We resist worshiping these other Greek gods. And so there's this very ferocious you know, culture within that centers in Jerusalem where they hate foreign culture. They hate Greek culture. They hate all of this. And when the Romans come in, the Romans have been fully Hellenized. They worship the same gods. They write in Greek. They do all the same things. So why, why is it this, this movement called the Zealot Movement in Jerusalem where they hate the Romans? They hate Roman influence. They hate all of this stuff. Okay? So why is all this relevant? Because this, is, this all matters for this first century controversy. Because what they're saying is, no, we are the people of God. What it means to be one of the members of the people of God is that we follow the law of Moses. That's how you know. You worship one God who created everyone. You follow the law of Moses. That's how you know. And anything that threatens that is not from God. And they're very upset about this. And here comes Paul. And Paul is now saying, Look, all you Gentiles, you can be part of God's people too. And you don't need to get circumcised and you don't need to keep the law of Moses. What happens? All these Pharisees and Sadducees and angry people in Jerusalem are really upset about this, right? They accuse Paul. 
of teaching against the tradition of the elders and teaching against the law of Moses. And everywhere Paul goes, he starts to get persecuted. The Jews start to raise up riots and attack him and try and kill him. If you read the book of Acts, Paul is constantly being pursued by the Jews because they see him as a Hellenizing influence. They see him as somebody who's preaching Greek culture. That's, this is still relevant today because guess what? Orthodox Jews uh, accuse Christians of mixing Judaism with paganism. Like Hercules. Hercules was half man, half God. Guess how they see Jesus? We worship Jesus. Half man, half God. So in Jews today, why do they resist the message of Jesus being the Messiah? Because they see Christianity as a bastardized kind of fusion of Judaism and Greek and Greek paganism. Does this make sense? Okay, all of this is important if you want to understand what the scriptures are actually talking about. Because this is the controversy. All right, are you ready for verse 12 now? Oh, wait, I didn't finish verse 11. All right, when Cephas came to Antioch, I, Paul, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Well, I didn't even tell you who Cephas is. Cephas is Peter, okay? Cephas is Peter, okay, one of the 12, and, uh, you know, considered to be the leader of the apostles in Jerusalem, all right? Verse 12, for before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in the, his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Okay, pause. Here's what's happening. They're at the church in Antioch. Okay, Peter is with them. He's visiting from Jerusalem and he's fellowshipping with all the Gentiles. Oh my goodness, blasphemy. Oh my goodness, how can Peter be fellowshipping with Gentiles? We talked about this two or three weeks ago, right? When we talked about Acts chapter 10. Peter has a vision. He sees unclean animals. Voice tells him, eat. And he's like, no way. I'll never eat unclean animals. And the voice says, do not call anything unclean which God has made clean. And he gets a revelation that God is making the Gentiles who put their faith in Jesus clean in his sight. Okay. Peter has this revelation. He tells the entire church in Jerusalem, they're shocked. Oh my gosh, God is saving the Gentiles. So now Peter has his personal revelation from the Lord. He goes to the church in Antioch and he starts to fellowship. He starts to eat with Gentiles, a big cultural no-no in Judaism. You cannot fellowship with Gentiles. You don't know where that meat has been. It might have been Dedicated to an idol. It might be ceremonially unclean, right? You can't do that. But Peter is doing it until James comes, okay? Now, how many of you guys remember our study on James? Amen. James was one of the, the great leaders of the church in Jerusalem, the brother of Jesus, held in very high regard, especially by those who are amongst the Pharisees, okay? So James is like, you know, the, the boss of the super conservative Christians in Jerusalem, okay? James comes with his entourage to Antioch, and what happens? Peter's like, sorry, guys, not going to sit with you anymore, right? He goes over, he's like, and he's going, why, all these super conservative Jews, right? Super conservative Jewish Christians, and he's going to sit with them, and he's not going to sit with them. And then even the, now the other, now the other Jews are getting like, 
oh, shoot. And they start going over, and they start not fellowshipping with the Gentiles anymore, and they're just going to sit with the Jews. And even Barnabas, right, who's a close friend of Paul's, even Barnabas is going to do this. You have to understand how powerful this cultural influence is, right? They've been doing this for hundreds of years, right? It's so hard. Overnight, God gives a vision, and like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to break hundreds of years of culture. And this is what happens. And what happens? Paul gets ticked off. Right? In front of everyone. He stands up and he goes, how dare you, Peter? That's crazy. I don't know about you guys. Have you ever seen your leaders fight? Some of you. When I was in youth group, two of my teachers got into straight up fist fight brawl right in the sanctuary. Boom, they were going at it. They were wrestling. They were trying to kill each other. And I was like, Right? These are our teachers, right? And they're doing this. I've seen pretty crazy things. You guys are living in the super tame era, right? This is the super tame era where it's like, you know, you just attack people on, on social media. You dislike their pose, right? Oh, he's a loser, right? You talk about it like that. Back in the day, we actually used to have people who would fight a lot and, like, do crazy stuff. And they would steal stuff and all this kind of stuff. We don't see all that too much anymore in church. It's, it's usually other stuff that we struggle with. But anyways, what we see here is an outward fight between two of the great leaders of the early church, okay? Now, they weren't throwing fists at each other, okay? But they were in a public altercation, a public verbal argument in front of everyone. Holy cow, all right? Big deal in the early church. What you're going to see, actually, is that Paul gets into a number of seeming altercations with people, okay? He gets into an altercation with Mark, it seems like, um, John Mark, the guy who wrote the, the book of Mark, goes on a missions trip with Paul, and he doesn't want to keep going. And apparently they have a, a, a tiff, and they, he leaves, and then Paul says, I'm never traveling with that guy again. He's out of here. That guy sucks. All right? My interpretation. Right? But later, he reconciles. So what you see with Paul is that when he's kind of a younger leader, he seems to be getting in altercations and fights with a lot of people. As he matures and gets older, it seems like he gets more mellow. He gets a little bit more chill. He's not as openly passionate in a confrontational way, especially with believers. Now, that's just my read on it, but I think that's, I think that's fairly accurate, okay? And um, what I want to say is this to take away from this. Even great leaders err sometimes. Even great leaders err sometimes. And they have flaws. And they have faults. Let me put you another way. Great leaders sometimes have great flaws. Great leaders sometimes have great flaws. Why do I need to say that, brothers and sisters? Because if you're walking with Jesus long enough, you are going to see some great leaders fall. You are going to see some great leaders fall. Okay? You're sometimes, you are going to see great leaders do something pretty wrong. In this case, it's Peter. In this case, Peter is intimidated by these other believers. Right? Even though he's the one that's given all the authority, but he's still intimidated by them. Even though he got a personal revelation from the Spirit of God, he's still intimidated. And he does something that's not right. Okay? And, in, and what I want to say is this. There are many leaders in the church that are going to have major falls. And the question is, how do we treat those people? How do we treat people as a body? There's two temptations, two ways you can go about it. Number one, you could try and just sweep everything under the rug. Oh, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody, right? Just pretend it never happened, right? We do that, like, that's how Koreans handle business, right? Don't tell anybody, shh, 
right? Just pretend everything's perfect. Everything's good. <laughs> you didn't see what you thought you saw, right? That's like squibbing out of the rug. Don't do that. Don't do that, okay? Look, if a leader errs or stumbles, it is appropriate if the stumble is a big one, it's appropriate for the leader to take a break from ministry. It's appropriate for a leader to step down for a time. That's okay. That doesn't mean that that leader is a failure. That doesn't mean that leader is a failure. Let me put it to you another way. This happens to so many leaders. If you want to be a pastor and go into ministry, I'll tell you one of the things you're going to have to deal with. You're going to have to deal with the idolatry of ministry. The temptation to idolize ministry happens to almost every pastor at least once. Some of them are just in a constant <laughs> cycle of idolizing ministries over and over, okay? But it's very difficult to avoid. It's very difficult to avoid. This is, this is how it happens. You know, like, God, you, you prioritize the presence. You get real anointing on your life. God starts to move through you. People start to go, oh, wow. Wow, pretty anointed, right? Wow, he's a good speaker. Oh, wow, he's a good worship leader, whatever, right? And you start to build some kind of influence and following, and then you get busy. You get busy with your little bit of success, and you start to build more and more and more. What happens? You lose that same priority that you had for the presence of God. Newsflash, first for today. It is a war for the rest of your life to prioritize the presence. Okay? You never get to the place where you're like, I got it. I got that one nailed down. I ain't never going to fall. You're in trouble is what the Bible says right there. Right? Pride comes before a fall. Okay? No, no, no. It's, it's a battle for the rest of our lives to prioritize the presence. And it's very dangerous in ministry because you start to conflate. You start to confuse your ministry with God. Right? Oh, yeah, I spent time with God. I led like three services this week. Fool, you didn't spend any time with God. You're ministering to other people. You're using the gas from your tank, and you ain't filling up. Uh-oh. Now some of y'all thinking about your positions as teachers and leaders. Right? Yeah, I spent time with God. I was in two services, and I led two Bible studies, and I did this meeting over here. Man, did you really spend time with God? Look, to spend time with God, you got to get in the secret place, and he's got to speak to you. Right? you got to get life in that place. And that is so tempting to forsake that. And I'll tell you what happens. If you don't fill up, you start to have less and less gas in your tank. And you start to pour out your key. You pour out because why? You're obligated to people. Right? You have all these people who depend on you. And then what happens? Pretty soon you're doing all this work with no anointing. Okay? And you know what happens after that? You start getting tired. And you're like, dude, this isn't fun anymore. Right? God's not blessing me. In ministry. Man, you've been prioritizing intimacy. Happens all the time. Guess what? It's not just pastors who burn out. It's leaders in ministry. That's why I'll always tell you, we don't need you. Okay? I can do all of it. I can do announcements. I can do worship. I can preach. I can prophesy over you afterwards. I don't need your help. I'll be the greeter out there. I can do all that. We don't need you, okay? We appreciate your service, but don't fall into the Messiah complex. They need me. 
oh, they need me so much. I have no time to spend time with Jesus. No, you got, you got it all backwards. And I can tell you, that happens to pastors times 10. The temptation for pastors to fall into that is much greater than for average people or for leaders in the church. So if you can't get that priority now, do you think you're going to be able to have it if you get promoted into greater authority? Answer, no way. No way. That's why you got to get it now. If you want to go into ministry, don't show me your MDiv. Show me your prayer life. I don't care about your MDiv. I know people that got MDivs, they don't even walk with Jesus anymore. All right? No, show me the robustness of your prayer life. Show me the anointing that's on your life. The anointing is what qualifies us for ministry. Okay? The MDiv is helpful. If you don't know the MDiv, it's Masters of Divinity. All right? That's like the pastor's degree. It's helpful. I like MDivs. Okay? But don't make the mistake of thinking that's the thing that qualifies you for ministry. No. No. God can use donkeys. Okay? God can use anyone. You don't need the degree. You need the anointing. You need the conviction from God. You need his word in your heart. You need passion for it and burden for it. And guess what? That's not just for church leaders, brothers and sisters. That's for all Christians. We're all called to ministry. We're all called to ministry. On the day of judgment, you're going to be judged for your ministry. And the question is... How much anointing did you foster, did you nurture in the place of prayer and intimacy so that you had something to impart to somebody else, to influence them? So many people are working so hard for the, for the church, and they're having such little impact on people. Working so hard, and I lovingly say, oh, that you would do like half of that work, and that you would put the other half in the presence because look, when you're intimate with the Lord, can I tell you, you minister naturally. You don't even have to try. You just tell people, dude, God spoke to me the other day, and this is what he said. And they're like, oh, wow, that's good, man. Right? Right? You say things prophetically without even trying. It just happens. Right? You lead worship, and it's not like, it's just, you're, you're, it's just, you're just singing to Jesus. You know, I, I used to laugh, like, leading worship, I, I did, I led worship professionally for years, right? And I'm like, man, this is the easiest job ever. I just, I just do what I always do. And they pay me money for it. Suckers. I would do it if you didn't pay me money for it, right? And it's not, it, and why? Because it's not work when it's what I love to do, right? And guess what? Sometimes this job feels like that too. I just, I just yell at you the stuff that I feel like God speaks to me from the scriptures. Guess what? I would read them anyway. Even if they didn't pay me, I would read them, right? And that's why, it's, that's why I don't burn out in ministry, right? Because all I'm doing is I'm focusing on my relationship with the Lord. And I just tell you the stuff that God tells me. Amen? All right, verse 14. And I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Pause. 
Okay, Paul can be really hard to understand sometimes. He's like Yoda, right? He's like, the way he puts sentences together is tricky. All right, take a minute and tell your neighbor what you think that means. Go ahead and read it one more time. Twenty more seconds. All right. All right. I'm going to give you my take. Now, here's the thing. These are controversial passages, okay? You're going to find pastors that interpret these in different ways, all right? So it's helpful to try and articulate how you read the passage because it makes you critically analyze it, all right? Now, here's the traditional reading. The traditional reading when, when Peter, excuse me, when Paul says, Peter, you're a Jew who lives like a Gentile, what he means is that Peter has given up living by the law of Moses, okay? He no longer tries to follow the law of Moses, now, because he is in Christ, he is free from the law, which means that he, does, he is no longer obligated to obey the law of Moses, okay? That's the traditional Protestant reading. That's the way we've been reading it for hundreds of years. And the idea is that all the apostles no longer keep the law of Moses, including Paul. Now, I want to lovingly say that I do not think that is the correct interpretation, okay? I do not think that is the correct interpretation. In fact, what we see is that Peter is appalled when he receives the vision and he's told, eat unclean things, Okay? Most of the way this goes is that Jesus abolished the law, that he was like, no, it's okay. And there's a passage in Mark where it says that he declared all foods clean, okay? And, and we gather from that that Jesus taught his disciples they're no longer obligated to follow the law of Moses, okay? I really don't think that that's true. Now, it would take me at least an hour to dissect all the various verses, and half of you would be sleeping by the time we finish that study, okay? So we're not going to do that, but what I would suggest is that you study this issue on your own if this is an interest of theological, you know, if this is theologically interesting for you, and I can help point you in the right direction. But I believe that the Jewish apostles continued to keep the law of Moses throughout their whole lives, okay? The strongest evidence for this is at the end of the book of Acts, Paul goes to Jerusalem, and he's accused by Jews in Jerusalem, saying this is somebody who teaches against the law of Moses. And he stands up in front of everyone and says, brothers, I've never taught against the law of Moses. I've never taught against the law of Moses. And he actually takes a vow. He shaves his head, which is a Nazarite vow. He takes a Nazarite vow, which is, you know, stipulated in the law of Moses to show that he continues to follow the law of Moses himself. Okay? 
what I think is correct, that Paul was teaching that Gentile believers are not obligated to keep the law of Moses, but he was not trying to say that Jewish believers are no longer obligated to keep the law of Moses. Now, I know that's weird, and that's going to take, like I said, a lot of theological dissection to really go through that. But I want to encourage you, if you're curious about that, we can talk about it on our own, because this is helpful for understanding the New Testament. So then what does he mean that you live like a Gentile? My interpretation of this, and some others share this view, is that Paul is talking about how Peter is not a Pharisee, okay? If you were a Pharisee at the time, you kept very strict understanding the law of Moses, okay? And you guys see that news article? This was a couple years ago. This guy, this ultra-Orthodox guy was flying on a plane, and he got into a plastic bag. You guys ever saw, you guys saw that picture? No, you didn't. Okay, whatever. All right, some ultra-Orthodox people do things like this. And the idea is that he was a descendant of the priests, and as such, he cannot be anywhere close to a cemetery. So if he flies over a cemetery, for him, that's sin. So he was told by his rabbi that he could go into a plastic bag, and that would keep him from sinning in that way. Okay? That's what Pharisees did. Okay? That's how Paul lived his life. The idea is this, that there's the 613 laws of Moses, and then there's what's called the fence that we erect around Torah. And the idea is this, if Torah, if, if the law of Moses says that we cannot work on a Sabbath, then what we do, we don't do anything that could potentially be work, right? Starting a fire, can't do it. Ben Shapiro does not start fires on the Sabbath. That's right, he's an Orthodox Jew. He can't drive his car, because when you drive your car, what are you doing? Internal combustion engine. That's how, yeah, that's how it works in Judaism. Okay, in Judaism, the idea is these laws are so holy and so important that we can't do anything that would even begin to maybe break some of those laws. Does that make sense? And so if, you're, if you live like that, and you see another Jew who does not, have that level of meticulous carefulness, then you're like, dude, you're living just like a Gentile. And that was the expectation. That was the understanding. If you were really serious about following God, you became a legalist. Okay? If you were really serious in Judaism about following God, you became a legalist. And people like Peter, who is a simple fisherman trying to follow Yahweh, for you look at people like him, and you're like, dude, you are just a whatever. You're like, oh, I'm not even really sure if you're a follower of God. Because, you know, you could be sinning all the time. You don't even know it. All right. Why is this relevant? Because we fall into the same thing today, church. We fall into the same thing today. Okay. A lot of Peter, a lot of Paul's writing is warning against falling into legalism because that's exactly what happened to Jewish believers trying to follow Yahweh. They fell into a trap of trying to eliminate every vestige of sin. Ready for news flash number two? You cannot eliminate all sin in your life. You sin way more than you think you do. Guess what? You have a lustful thought. Sin. You could be doing something more holy and more meaningful for the kingdom. He who does not do the good he knows he ought to do, sins. There's lots of sin in our lives. And what happens to a lot of Christians is they become focused on eliminating all sin. Can I tell you what that is? That is a demonic spirit called the religious spirit. Okay, the religious spirit is sent to try and point out every could be sin in your life and torment you about all of them, right? You're never doing good enough. God's always disappointed with you. 
Because you could have prayed another hour. You could have evangelized to another person, right? You could have read your Bible a little more. And guess what? The, the real thing is there is what the religious spirit is trying to do is disorient you and take your focus off of what the Holy Spirit is actually telling you to do. So you become worried about all these little potential sins in your life. And in the meantime, you lose focus on what has God actually told you to do in this season of your life. You can't even remember because he's disappointed at you. And he wants you to do all this stuff over here. Brothers and sisters in the Korean church, yes, that is you. This is our stronghold. This is our stronghold in the Korean church. This is one of the major strongholds. It's the same thing that Paul fought against in his walk with God. It's what led him to reject Jesus. Can I tell you that this happens all the time? Christians who come under religious spirit, what happens? You become super hard on yourself and you become super hard on other people. You don't know how to show grace to people. You don't understand that God doesn't hold them to the same standard that he thinks you're, he's holding you to. God has different standards for everyone. Why? Because he understands everyone perfectly. Okay? If you have a stronghold in your heart of anxiety, for you to not worry and to trust God in a really simple area of your life is really hard. But if you do it, God goes, good job. Okay? If you have a stronghold, oh my gosh, my test is so important. And in your mind you go, but I know I'm supposed to prioritize the kingdom. But oh my gosh, I don't want to fail my test. And you go, okay, God, I'm going to trust you with this. A little thing. For me, that's easy, dude. But guess what? When you do it, God gives you great honor and he blesses you because he saw the faith that it took to trust him in that area. Okay? This comes against the religious spirit. The religious spirit is, is saying the opposite. Nothing's ever good enough. It's never good enough, right? Whatever you did for Jesus, not good enough. And what happens is you can't have intimacy with the Lord because you're constantly afraid that he's disappointed, he's angry, he's mad with you, you're in sin, you're in rebellion, you're doing all this bad stuff, and what happens, you lose all your will to follow Jesus. It becomes the hardest labor in the world, right, following Jesus. Can I tell you something? You need to break that freaking religious spirit off yourself. You need to break it off. And can I tell you how? You focus on the cross. Okay. Why is the blood of Jesus given to us? Because we need it. Because we need it, church. Like I said, we all sin way more than we think we do. Okay. It's important to plead the blood of the lamb over our sin. Okay. Guess what? God can delight in us, even in our immaturity. One of the most glorious things, right, where I can come to God and be like, God, Oh, it's so good to see you again. And God's like, good to see you too. Right? I can feel that. I can hear that. I can enjoy my time with him because I know that he's not a taskmaster. He's not a dude with a whip. Some of us, man, God is that dude with the whip who's constantly whipping your brain. All right? That's not God. It's a religious spirit. Cut it off. Break it off. Plead the blood of the lamb over your life. Right? And rest in his grace and in his mercy. But what must you do? You must obey what the Spirit is telling you to do in this season. The focus is not on eliminating sin. The focus is on having great faith. Ah, this is so important. Oh, if Christians would get this. Get this. It's not so important. I'm talking about this season of your life. 
I'm saying it's not so important to eliminate every sinful activity that you do, right? Man, you struggle with jealousy. Oh, you just feel like I got to get rid of all jealousy, and if I don't, God will never bless me. No. He knows all about your jealousy, and he knows about 20 other things that you struggle with that you don't even realize. Okay? One day you'll get there. Well, he'll show you all the other stuff that's jacked up about you. All right? But for now, what is he calling you to do in this season of your life? I'm asking you, church. That should be the number one issue on your heart. What is God calling me to do in this season of my life? What are the commands that he has impressed on my heart and said, Son, daughter, I want you to do this. And guess what? Many of those will take trust. They'll feel very risky. It'll feel like, God, I don't, that's so hard for me to do. I'll have to overcome a great fear, whatever it might be. I'll have to give up that thing that I love so much. But that's the secret to your growth. That's the secret to your growth. The way David put it is that he desires obedience over sacrifice. Some of us come to Jesus with all of our sacrifices that we're giving him in lieu of, instead of the simple obedience he's asking for us in this season of our life. What's he asking you to do? For me in this past season, I've told you what it was. Morning prayer. Morning prayer is costly. I got to go to bed. I'm telling you, that's what it is. You sacrifice your nights, right? Everybody else having fun. I'm going to bed. <laughs> right? But that's what the Lord, I felt, was asking me in this past season of my life. Church, get this. If you will obey God in the simple but clear things that he's calling you to do in this season, right, then your faith will grow. Your walk with God will grow. Stop freaking out over every little thing. And just say, God, I want to be obedient in the main ways that you're calling me to be obedient. Worship team, come on up. Let's stand up. Some of you have no idea what God is calling you to do in this season. I'm going to say this lovingly, but this is something you should know. <laughs> this is something you should know. Okay, I'm not saying it's just one thing. Sometimes it could be several things. But this is one of the huge problems for believers. They don't understand how much they're influenced by a religious spirit. So they feel like the Spirit's telling them all these things all the time. There's so many different things that they feel like God wants from them. I say, I say this, look, no, what are the clear times you knew was God speaking to you? What are the clear times you knew God was speaking to you? One of the big problems is that Christians don't know how to nurture and cultivate the word of God in their lives. They get conviction, and they feel it for like a week or a day. <laughs> and then two days later, two weeks later, they can't remember what the Lord said to them. I want to say this. It's really important. The times when you know God speaks to you, write it down. Make a little bracelet, okay? Make a little memorial in your house. I'm serious. This is what I do, okay? When I was in, when I was in high school, 
I put up the verse that God put on my heart. I printed it out on paper. I taped it to my bed right next to me so that every morning when I woke up, I looked right at it. Because I knew God had spoken that to me in the season. Okay? But I says, this is really important. What is God saying? I'm serious. Write it down. Write it down. Email yourself. Okay? Do whatever you can to remind yourself. And then what do you do? You pray into it. You pray into the things that God has called you to do. You pray into it again and again. Oh, if you will ask him, he'll give it to you. Some people, they get a word from the Lord. I want you to preach. I want you to go up on your campus and start preaching. And they're like, God, that's too scary. I can't do that. That's crazy. And they put it down and they never touch it again. Can I say you have missed such a great opportunity? Because you didn't know. There's a lot of times where God will tell you to do something that's too scary for you right now. You know what you do? You war in the place of prayer. You bring it to him in the place of prayer. God, I feel like you might be telling me to do this, but God, I'm scared. God, give me courage. Father, give me courage. You start to war for the thing that you need in the place of prayer. You start to contend for it and ask him for it and seek him for it. Brothers and sisters, this is a huge part of how we grow. How do you steward the word of the Lord in your life? As we come before the Lord right today, I want us to take up what we feel God has spoken to us. Even if it's just one thing in this season of your life, what has God spoken to you? And what I want you to do is I want you to write it down and right now just begin to pray into it. Just begin to pray into it. Just begin to steward that thing that God has told you to do. For some of you, it's very simple acts of obedience. Sometimes it's reconciliation. Can I just tell you this? If God convicts you to reconcile with somebody, you really got to do it. If you don't do it, you miss out on breaking a stronghold in your life that you could carry with you for decades. It could mess you up for decades of your life. You could have gotten freedom if you had stewarded the word of the Lord well. For some of you, it's a place of idolatry. They not surrender to God. You need to war in the place of prayer until you can surrender that idol freely. It's important. God's calling us to know Him in an intimate way, church. But you've got to steward the word that God gave you. You can't blame God. God, all the feelings are gone. I don't remember what you said. No, you didn't steward the word that God gave you. Take responsibility for it. It's not God's job to keep you passionate about the word that he gave. He lights the fire, but we cultivate it in the place of prayer. What is God, what is he been speaking to you in this past season? Start to bring it up in prayer to him right now. Come on, let's go before the throne. Let's just start to breathe on these words that he's given to us.